Hello, and welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. This podcast aims to help farmers expand your capital, whether social, intellectual, or economic. Investing on and off farm is hard enough. Here, we will provide insightful stories and resources to help out. Full transparency, this is our shameless way for you to like us and hopes you partner with us down the road. Lastly, there are no ads here. All I ask is you enjoy and share if you find value. Now, on to the episode. I mean, I would say the one thing, like if anyone wants to find success in real estate, it's just remember it's a, it's a build wealth slow. It's not a get rich quick. It's a build wealth slow. And I think, you know, if you want it bad enough and, and you really just stick with it, there's, there's a lot of ways to be successful within real estate, but stick with it and you'll, you'll find your, you'll find your path. And, and then lastly, like I've said multiple times, you know, on, on this conversation is you got to tell people what you're, what you're doing and what you're looking to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, we have a super cool guest on the show, Gabriel Hamill. Um, Gabriel has been in real estate for quite a while. He has done many deals using what's called FISBO or owner seller financing. Um, so I am very interested, selfishly, um, to learn more about this um, as I have never done um, a deal of this type of structure. So Gabriel, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Casey. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Gabriel, maybe if we just um, back up, maybe to the start of how did you get your start in real estate, and really why did you get in your start in real estate as well? Yeah, it's a long story, so I'll, I'll try to condense it down as much as possible. But um, long story short, you know, I was the kid in school that really didn't didn't really know why what the teachers were teaching, how that related to real life, and. How that made sense so it was really it was really the social aspect of school and then I was a high school wrestler that, that's what really kept me in school um, and then I ended up joining the Army National Guard my senior year of high school and then a couple years after graduating high school you know I'd taken on a bunch of odd and end jobs and, and, and tried out some different things um, but then I got deployed to uh, Kuwait and Iraq in 03 and 04 and just before that I had read Rich Dad Poor Dad and so I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this makes sense. Yeah. There it is right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm like, this makes sense. This isn't what the teachers are teaching in school. And as most of us who have read that know, it's not a how-to. It's just a mindset uh, around, around finances, around how to create your own financial freedom and, and go against the status quo, oftentimes what they're teaching in school and, and what our parents are trying to pass down. And so I was like, shit, this makes sense. This is what I'm going to do. I'm yeah. going to build a real estate empire and be financially free young. And then all of a sudden I got a call and I was deployed to the Middle East for a year. Um, but I really just kept that vision in my mind of, hey, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna start start buying real estate. And so um, really where I got my start, I come back in 04, I'm looking at properties and in 05, I, I bought my first property. And in 05 during the subprime when anyone can get a loan. So I literally had no yep. money, no job, uh, nothing. And the banks, the banks approved me for a loan. And so, very similar again in 06 and similar in 07. And I'm thinking, this is really easy. I'm just going to go to the bank once a year for 20 years. And I'll have 20 houses. Like, this is this is too easy. Um, what I didn't know is that's not how lending uh, always <laughs> was. You know, I, I was in an environment where the market was hot. Anyone could get a loan. And so, you know, that first house, I had what now they call house hacking. Back then, it just made good sense to rent out two of the rooms and offset my mortgage. So I did that for the first couple houses. And so... Uh, by 08, I went back to the bank and said, hey, I want to buy another house. And they said, sorry, you don't qualify. And I said, what do you mean I don't I don't qualify? Mm. They said, well, you don't have a job. 
and you don't have a down payment and you don't have any income of, of any sort. And I said, well, why does that matter? I was able to buy these homes last year and the year before and the year before. And they said, yeah, that's, that'll probably never happen again. Guidelines have changed. You don't qualify. Uh, your best bet is to go get a job and, and save up for down payment. And I'm just doing the math because I was working, you know, odd men jobs and uh, I wasn't qualified to work really anything over a minimum wage job. And so uh, I thought there had to be another way. And I briefly remember reading about seller financing and private money and hard money. And at the time, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had the experience or the knowledge that, and I knew nobody with money. Um, and so private money wasn't an option. Hard money didn't seem like an option. And so I thought seller finance would be, would be my route. And so, you know, really I spent the next year just online on Craigslist, mostly just looking for seller finance deals. And I eventually uh, found two duplexes side by side. Uh, so four units and was able to structure a deal that replaced my income. And so now I was making, you know, I was working, uh, you know, 30 hours a week at a minimum wage job. So it felt very obtainable to uh, put a seller finance deal together that cash flowed as much mm -hmm. as that job. And so that's what yeah. I did in, in 09. And I stopped, I stopped working right, right then and there. Yeah. When you keep your cost basis really low, it's really, well, I don't want to say easy, but it's more attainable to get that financial freedom that you were talking about rather than having car payments, having a huge mortgage, you know, having all these other car credit card payments um, to keep on top of. Um, so that's good. You were, you went, you were smart about it and kept your cost basis really low. Yeah, we, I mean, we had really, we didn't have a lot of expenses. And so, um, yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends back then, they were spending a lot of money on, on just things that they couldn't afford or, or didn't need. But in my mind, it was, I was very focused on, I'm going to buy assets, real estate, real estate assets, property. I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy property. And so, yeah, at, at 27, I was technically financially free. In fact, at the time I was like, I'm retired. And, you know, I realized I was still, <laughs> I was still poor as shit. Like I didn't have, it's not yeah. like I, I had a ton of, uh, a ton of cash flow. I just owned some assets that kicked off enough income to at least cover our expenses. And so that was kind of that first step of financial freedom. And what it allowed me to do is really just have the time to put more, more deals together. And so that's where I really focused my time and energy, uh, you know, during that time was just, you know, no money down seller finance deals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way to go about it. And a lot of people, I myself included, I didn't really fully understand how it worked. It was kind of foreign to me, but is there like a really simple like if we exclude real estate, do you have an example about someone um, who isn't involved in real estate and how it would work? Maybe like with a car or something. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I've never had a car. I've never had a car payment in my life. But yeah, so using like the car example, it would be instead of going and paying cash for a car, you're you'd be paying the seller of the car uh, over time in monthly payments um, until a car is paid off. And now the terms, you know, the terms of how you pay them is really where the magic of seller financing is because you could pay direct principal payments where every dollar goes towards the principal balance. Um, you could pay interest only payments where your payment might be lower, but you're not really paying it down. Uh, but the, the real magic of seller financing really is, is it can be as creative as you and the seller can get. And so, you know, the way that works in real estate is unlike going to a bank where when you walk into a bank, the bank's telling you, these are the terms. First, you need, you need to qualify. Here's how much you qualify for. Here's the down payment. Here's the interest rate. 
And it's either, for the most part, it's it's take it or leave it with the bank. There's not a lot of flexibility in, in yeah. what the terms can be until you get into some of the larger commercial stuff. And then some of those lenders have some more uh, flexibility and creativity. And so what seller financing is, instead of getting a bank loan from, say, a Wells Fargo, a Bank of America, or any other lending institution, you're asking the sellers if they will be the bank. So rather than making those payments to the bank, the sellers become the bank. You're making your payments directly to them. And then those terms are truly as creative as you can get. So a lot of times properties that may not pencil out with traditional financing could potentially pencil out well with seller financing because you have the flexibility to, to change the interest rate, the down payment, the price. You can really do whatever you and the seller are willing to um, come up with and as creative as you're willing to get. Yeah. It's funny you tell that example because I just kind of realized a few, a couple of years ago, I did that exact thing with my sister. I was moving to Europe for a little stint and I didn't need my car anymore, but, and she really needed a good family car, um, but didn't want to buy new. The used car vehicle situation was outrageous to say the least. So I basically did owner seller financing with her very minimal, like 1% interest rate or something like that. Um, but I did in my head, I didn't really categorize it as owner seller financing. It was just a deal between my sister and I. Yeah, you sell it, you basically sell or finance the car. You maybe didn't need or want all the money up front and or maybe she didn't have it. Maybe it was just better for both of you to, you know, for her to give give you some payments and for you to get to receive some income. So that's that's really what seller finance is when it comes to real estate. It's the same thing. And and uh I love that you mentioned your sister because it is it's a relationship business. So yeah, you know, I really focus on that aspect of you know building my business is really focused on just building relationships. A lot of sellers that will sell or finance a property to you, it's because they know, like, and trust you, or they've learned to know, like, and trust you, or you've created, you know, some level of trust where they, they trust you with that asset. And then the other part of that is they don't always need the, the money all at once. And so um, there are a lot of reasons uh, a seller would carry financing rather than want, wanting to be paid off. But one of the big ones is they don't want to pay the capital gains all at once. Uh, but the other ones, a lot of times they don't want to actively go invest either. So they don't need that. They don't always need that lump sum. You're almost, you're almost creating like an annuity for them. Like a lot of these sellers would prefer a monthly payment because it's steady income for them backed by an asset that they, they've usually owned for a long time. Yep. I really like that point, Gabriel, when you talk about relationship business, they need to, the owners, owners need to understand that you can make those monthly payments to them. Otherwise they'll never, they'll never go forward with it. Yep. Yeah. But what, it, I mean, that's also like some of the, some of the drawbacks in that what if you can't make payments or maybe it's complicated on their end what if they have traditional debt on their asset like how does how does that play out yeah it's, it's a good question so i've never been in a position where i couldn't make the payments now now keep in mind when i started off i had you know I, sometimes i get the question like how much reserves did you have i had almost nothing in the bank like almost nothing, but I also had nothing to lose. And I just didn't give myself a plan B. And so I really looked at it as like, um, you know, worst case scenario, because of the way the contracts were written, they were those original seller finance loans, the, the seller owned them free and clear. So it was a note and trustee, just like you would you would do with the bank. And I was making those payments directly to them. And what was written in the contract, being non-recourse, if for any reason, and it never happened, but if for any reason, I were to default on the on the properties or I missed payments or I couldn't refi and pay them, pay them off, they would just get the properties back. And so I was looking at worst case scenario, 
I, if, if this doesn't work out, if I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just going to give them the property back and they're going to have a better property with better tenants paying higher rent. And it's a property they've, they've already owned for years. And in this case with those first couple, you know, they'd owned the asset for 30 plus years. So worst case scenario, they're getting, getting the home back. Um, you know, on, mm -hmm. on my, on my side as a buyer, sure. There was a lot of what ifs, like what if the tenant moves out? What if, um, you know, I can't make that mortgage payment. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have the funds, you know, early on to, to rehab these properties, but I looked at all the what ifs that could happen. And I thought it was way riskier to not start investing in real estate than to just pull the trigger and buy an asset that's kicking off income. And so one of the, you know, even to this day, like the biggest thing I look at is the property has the cash flow, has the cash flow when I buy it. The numbers have to make sense for when I when I buy the deal. My only criteria when I when I first got started was they need to be cash flow positive. They need to spit off income based on the current rents right now. And so mm -hmm. uh, that that to me that really just hedged my risk of ever having to give the properties back. And sure, there were some moments of like, oh shit, what do, you know, what do I do? But in the end. As I kept buying more property, I realized having more property also hedged that risk. Because if you have one property and the tenant moves out, that's 100% of your income. You have 10 properties, 20 properties, 100 properties, and a tenant moves out, that's less and less a percentage of, a, of your income. And so to me, it was less riskier to just keep buying more properties. And that's, and that's what I did. Um, and then yeah, to answer your question, as far as um, you know, if there's financing on it, the, a lot of the stuff I originally bought, they were properties owned free and clear. If there is existing debt on the property, you can do a subject to or a land sell contract. You can you can do something, uh, you know, it's just a legal structure, an extra step to really avoid the due on sales clause that a lot of the banks have in place if you were to um, transfer title. Yeah, that due on sale clause, that that really can scare a lot of people because um, it's like a, almost people think of it as like a doomsday. But I feel like the bank, as long as you're, you can make payments, it's like you said earlier, it's all about a relationship with the bank. And if you can work out that do on sale clause, say, this is the situation. Here's what's going to happen. Can we, we're still going to make payments with you. Um, like, have you ever encountered anything like that or heard of anything where things have gone wrong or just like how to, how to approach that situation? Because, you know, with a lot of these commercial real estate assets, you know, there could be debt on the property. Specifically, I'm looking at self-storage deals right now. You know, those deals can range a million and above and could have a traditional debt, but also the owners would be interested in owner financing. Yeah, I mean, there's some legal ways to structure it. I mean, I, I'm not an attorney, but I definitely have an attorney, you know, look over the, the contract and the existing financing and put in place something that would make sense, whether it's, you know, subject to the existing mortgage or a land sale contract. Um, but in a lot of cases, what I'm buying with seller financing, they own it free and clear and there is no existing financing in place. That's, that's a pretty clean, pretty clean transaction because they become the note holder, um, and you're just making your payments to them. And so they're essentially the, the mortgage holder until you, until you pay that off. Okay. So is that all you target then, or is it just working through your funnel essentially? That's not all I target. That's the majority of the seller finance deals I've done is, is uh, sellers who have owned the property for a long period of time and they haven't free and clear. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, because yeah, like you said, it, it's probably a much cleaner way to go about the deal, especially when you're writing the note. Do, do those notes get complicated when you're writing, writing them out? 
No, I mean, I think it's actually, as long as you, you and the seller can come to agreement on terms and, you know, I, I'm not advising this is the best way to do it, but again, going back to the relationship business, a lot of my early deals, it was just conversations back and forth with the seller, sometimes emails back and forth. So if it was a non, now if it was a listed property, I'd want to lock that up and get that in contract just to get it off the market. But on the non-listed properties, a lot of times we didn't even have a contract. And again, I'm not saying that this is advisable, but I never, I've also never had a seller back out of a deal that was a handshake deal just because we didn't put it on paper. I mean, every purchase sales agreement has a way to back out of the deal if, if you don't like it. And so um, a lot of these early deals, it was me and the seller just going back and forth, just casually talking about price and interest rate and, and just coming to terms. And then once we had an agreement, um, once we had an agreement, we would shoot over an email to the title company. And a lot of times the, you know, the escrow of the title company will have an in-house attorney that and if it's free and clear, would write up the no and trust deed for us with really simple terms. And so, um, you, I mean, you could get it as complicated as possible. And then again, if there is existing finance in place, then you definitely want to have an attorney review that and write that up just, just to kind of have that, um, you know, extra extra piece in place. But if it's just you and the seller it's and, and you agree on something, it's pretty easy to get in, uh, everything, all the terms written up as, as it needs to be. Okay. So you just go to the title and they'll work with you, get their lawyer involved, make sure everything's copacetic. And then, yeah, I mean, you give up, I mean, there, yeah, there's a little bit of legal jargon in there, but it's pretty, it's pretty minor. I mean, it's not like pages and pages and pages like you would if you went and got a bank loan. You want to make sure everything's in there, everything's in there that you want, and everything's in there that the seller wants. It's amazing how big the bank loan documents are. It's like a textbook. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're covering their ass. I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is fair. I don't know. I like doing things in a much simpler way and build it based on on relationships like like you were talking about. Um, when you're structuring these deals, Gabriel, are a lot of your the the sellers interested in like 30 year amortization schedules similar to like a standard home loan, or are they interested in like 10 years with a balloon payment in year 10. What, what's your feel on that? Yeah. I'll tell you, there's no, there's no typical terms. And that's, it's probably the question the, the two questions I get asked the most is what are typical seller financing terms? Yeah. And the other question I get asked the most is how do you convince or talk a seller into carrying financing, which I have never talked or convinced the seller into financing. So um, the, you know, the, the first question that gets asked the most about, you know, what are typical terms it's that is that is the value of seller financing is there are no typical terms and so it really comes down to what does the seller want and every seller wants something different so yes sometimes you know it could be 30 years fully amortized similar to a bank loan other times they want to pay off early it can be interest only it can be direct principal um, you could start payments months after closing and so what i found throughout the years is the, the more I know about what the seller's needs are, in fact, like that's probably the single most important thing is finding out what the seller's needs are and then structuring a deal that gives them what they need and or want and still make the deal work for you. Now, not, not every deal you analyze is going to be able to come to terms that work for both you and the seller. But as a buyer, I'm never coming in of, hey, this is what I want or this is what I need. I'm asking them, I'm finding out because usually it's, it's, What's important to the seller is something different for every seller. Sometimes it's price, sometimes it's down payment, sometimes it's interest rate, sometimes it's something completely unrelated to that. And it's more of an emotional 
Um, like, hey, I just need income for X amount of years. And then when I pass away, I want it structured like this. It's just the more I can find out about what the seller's needs are, the more likely I am to structure a deal that can give them that piece, that one piece that's most important to them, and then still make the deal deal work for me. And that's and that's the beauty of seller financing is you you get to be creative. Um, and then you know the, the 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 other question I get asked a lot about how do you convince or talk a seller into carrying financing? Uh, I just haven't. You know, I I've found that it's easier to focus on sellers that already want to carry financing, who already know they already know what seller financing is. So then you can just ask the question of, hey, what kind of terms would you be interested in? And, you know, I always say it's not that you couldn't uh, educate a seller on what what seller financing is. Um, I just think it's an easier path and an easier conversation to find sellers that already know what seller financing is. They already know the advantages. That way you're asking them, hey, what kind of terms would you be interested in rather than trying to educate, you know, these men and women on on what this maybe new concept, what this new concept is. Yeah. That's a much smoother process, I imagine, when they already understand the risks and the benefits, but m- mostly the benefits. Yeah. They understand that they can structure them that ultimately meet their needs. And if it makes sense for you and it makes sense for the tenants and it cash flows, it can be a win-win situation for all three parties involved. Yeah. And you know, that is the tricky part with, uh, you know, with listed properties is a lot of time if you don't get access to what the seller wants it's really hard to structure a deal that gives them what they want if you don't know. And so that's where it becomes tricky because then it becomes very transactional. I mean, if I, if I see a property that's listed and I have my agent write an offer and they send that offer to that, you know, seller's agent and that seller's agent presents it to them, I have no idea if that's even what the seller's needs or wants are. And so, you know, for me, it's, if I can get access directly with the seller, I, I mean, I like the off market stuff for that reason. Um, it, it just comes down to the more you know about what the seller needs, the more you can offer them something that aligns with what, what they want. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Working with them, get what they want. It, in, that, in that same vein, when you're working with brokers, like how, what's your take on working with brokers and going and finding off-market deals? Like, are you also building relationships with commercial real estate brokers or residential brokers when you're also making these deals with sellers? Or, I mean, you're kind of playing in their backyard. So this is something that I've been trying to figure out for myself. Um, is it, should I go out and build a relationship with the broker? Do I give them a cut of the deal with an off-market deal that I source? I build a relationship with the seller. We create the deal, but because I'm in their backyard, I don't want to create any friction there because, you know, down the road, they could also offer me a deal. Um, but maybe they didn't because I was playing in their backyard without them knowing like i have you ever come across the situations i guess how do you approach those yeah i mean i just think you know life is full of relationships in in general and so you know i've really built my business around it's not it's not so much like systematic it's more around just genuine relationships and so when i you know in the early years i was doing everything i was just you know like i said talking to all these sell for sale by owners on craigslist but i was also talking to agents and brokers you know, it's now it's shifted because, you know, now I'm now I'm looking and buying larger deals, uh, mostly out of state where, you know, that broker relationship is is very important because they're sourcing me, you know, specific kind of deals and areas and asset classes that I'm that I'm looking for. And so, you know, oftentimes it's not always, um, 
you know, a for sale by owner type type property. So I think all those relationships are important. It's the more people that you can tell, you know, what you're looking for, the more people are going to be looking out, looking, you know, out for you or when they come across yeah. a property, you know, kind of in your, in your buy box, like they know that you're interested. And I, I think it's, you know, the challenge is if, if no one knows what you're looking for, no one's going to, no one's going to bring you a deal. And so, you know, yeah, early on, it was all directly to seller. And then as I started buying some bigger properties and then I shifted to the mobile home, mobile home park space. And it was, again, I was telling everybody, agents, brokers, friends, anyone, anyone in my circle, out of my circle, like, oh, buy, I'm investing in mobile home parks. So then that naturally attracted, you know, mobile home parks coming my way. I ended up on a bunch of lists of all these mobile home park brokers. Uh, you know, and then I shifted uh, more recently into commercial, um, a lot of industrial, like larger industrial type properties. And same thing, it's telling, you know, brokers, hey, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for high cash on cash, um, you know, large industrial deals. And so it's, you know, you have to open your mouth. You have to tell people what you're looking for, whether it's, you know, people in your circle, out of your circle, agents, brokers, friends, neighbors, it, it, it doesn't matter. You have to open your mouth and tell people what you're doing. Yep. Be very intentional set your vision really like if you let people know what your vision is what you're trying to accomplish and it's specific they'll remember that rather than oh casey he's interested in land he was interested in warehousing a little bit ago he's also talked about self-storage and duplexes like what is he really interested in so you stick to one thing they'll remember the one thing yeah, and I, think it, I think it's fine if it shifts right like i've, I've shifted a lot asset classes throughout the years but when I'm buying in a specific asset class or specific type of property, I mean, you know, the way I found my first mobile home park, because I had a, a broker keep sending me a bunch of apartments and I said, Hey, I'm really looking for, I'm really focused on the mobile home park space right now. In fact, I stopped looking and told everyone, I don't want to see any single family, any small multifamily folks on the mobile home park space. And so with that, with that focus, now that's not, I'll still buy mobile home parks. That's not my only focus right now, but in that time I had to shut off, you know, any emails, delete any emails from single family, small multifamily, so I could focus on that. So I had a broker sending me apartments, you know, weekly in, you know, in the city. And every time I'd email back and just be like, I'm really looking for mobile home parks, really looking for mobile home parks. So then when they got in-house listening for mobile home parks, they're going, oh yeah, Gabe said he was buying mobile home parks. So, you know, that's how I found that, that first one. And then I told my property manager who was managing that, hey, I'm going to buy more, I'm going to buy more mobile home parks. So then she found a mobile home park bought that mobile home park, you know? And so it's, it's just kind of that natural um, networking. And again, opening your mouth and saying, Hey, here's what I'm, here's what I'm looking to do. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'd like to leave our listeners with like one thing we we've talked about a lot. We've talked about relationships, cash flowing, making sure your risk is low um, building the relationships with sellers, but out of all the things, you know, what's the one thing that you'd like to leave us with today? Yeah. I mean, I would say the one thing, like if anyone wants to find success in real estate, it's just remember it's a, it's a build wealth slow. It's not a get rich quick. It's a build wealth slow. And I think, you know, if you want it bad enough and, and you really just stick with it, there's, there's a lot of ways to be successful within real estate, but stick with it and you'll, you'll find your, you'll find your path. And, and then lastly, like I've said multiple times, you know, on, on this conversation is you got to tell people what you're, what you're doing yeah. and what you're looking to do. Communication. Absolutely. Number one. All right. Thanks, Gabe. Well, wh where can people reach out to you and get to know you a little bit better? Yeah. The best place to find me is on Instagram, just at Gabriel R. Hamill. All right. Sounds great.
Gabe, thank you so much. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we look forward to next time. Cool. Thanks, Casey. See you, Gabe.